Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We've been studying a relevant book, a powerful book, really a letter, uh, one of three pastoral epistles. And so far we've seen that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to Timothy, uh, a young pastor, 35 years old. And I've been saying each week in the introduction that I've identified with this as a young pastor myself. And I got home last Sunday after church, and my wife Jessica says, You know, uh, Ben, you've been saying you're a young pastor. Don't forget you're 39 years old, not 35. And so we took a little poll for service. And by and large, everyone in first service, do we have a quick picture of that? Oh yeah, people, hands up, believing that they have a young pastor. And so, and uh, do we have the other side or just the one? We, we took two pictures, but Pastor Pete has got those, email those to Jessica. And uh, we just want to make the point that um, I feel young, right? <laughs> but anyway, uh, but Timothy in this uh, series is struggling with two key areas. Uh, as he leads, there's two themes that are kind of interwoven throughout the message or throughout the, uh, the letter. Uh, two overriding problems. Number one, doctrine, and then the next one was godliness. And uh, what's being taught, what's believed, and then how it is being lived out. Those are the two main things. On the first week, we talked about uh, the false teachers. Paul addresses this. He looks at their error. He looks at the goals of a false teacher. And then the result, the effect of false teachers in the midst of a church. Then last week, we uh, studied uh, Paul encouraging Timothy by giving him a personal testimony, his life experience, and it was all about grace. And last week, we mentioned about grace, and I gave a definition of grace, and I had a few individuals uh, take me up on uh, memorizing the long definition. If you're ready to do that after service, I'm more than happy to meet with you. I've got $10 bills ready to go. But that message on grace really was a blessing, blessing to me, blessing to the church. If you were not here You need to get online, listen to that, and let it be a blessing. Today, we're going to look at the last three verses of chapter 1, and really where Paul's wrapping up the greeting, explaining again why he's writing to to Timothy. And there's a key phrase that you'll you'll see, that we'll read here in a second, that says, uh, so that Timothy could fight the good fight. We see that again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, where, uh, again, it says to fight the good fight of faith, where Paul is encouraging Timothy to fight on the front lines. And Paul understood this. He knew this well in his own life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it says that he had a thorn in his flesh. There was a messenger of Satan that tormented Paul. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in fact, I want you to turn there just a couple pages before uh, 1 Timothy there. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look what it says. Uh, It says, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, uh, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Paul said, look, I had plans to do this, but certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. 
There was a spiritual warfare in Paul's life. He mentions it to the, to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, verse 12, where it says we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers of this dark world. There is a spiritual battle that is in the works for believers and really even for unbelievers. I ran across a section of scripture. In fact, I want you to turn there to Revelation chapter 12. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy. We will get there, I promise. But very interesting here where we see that Satan is leading an angelic force, a demonic force of uh, angels and attacks against a few different people. Let's look at it. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And I'll pause here for a second. That's a picture of the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord God. In verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. Why? So that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Now pause there for a second. This is a picture of a battle between the Lord and Satan. In verse, uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 9, it describes who the dragon is. Let's look at it there. Verse 9 says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who led the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. A third of the angels in heaven were swept down and now reside on the earth. And they're going to and fro, the Bible says, looking for someone to devour. There's a spiritual warfare, and they are fighting against Christ. We see it in verse 4, where Jesus was going to be born. The devil was waiting for that day that Jesus would be born so he could take Jesus down. We also see that there's a heavenly war against angels, righteous angels, against uh, the, the demonic angels in verse 7. Look what it says. And there was war in the heavens. Michael and his angels, that's the, the good, uh, solid, godly angels, fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, they fought back. There was a war in the heavenlies from an angelic standpoint. And then in verse 17 of that same chapter, look at it. The enemy, Satan, is leading an angelic force and attacks believers as well. Look what it says. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's command and hold to the testimony of God. In other words, if you are a Christ follower, if you have Jesus in your heart, there is a war for your soul and it's happening all the time. And in Ephesus, when Timothy received this letter, Satan was certainly attacking the church. The apostle Paul was gone. There were false doctrine, false leaders, elders in the church. And Paul is saying, Timothy, fight the good fight. And by the way, we all know that there's a spiritual struggle. We understand that. And... Uh, 
and we understand that, that we are all called to fight. But I also want to say that Timothy, he's receiving this as a mature believer. Uh, he had mature ears to hear. Um, this is not a message today when we look at these verses um, that are not necessarily for new believers, although new believers can certainly learn. But uh, Timothy, when he's re- receiving this letter and receiving this instruction, he's been with Paul for 20 years at this point. He's strong in doctrine. He's well-taught. He's well-trained. And Timothy would have understood that the false teaching that was being taught, uh, which we described a couple weeks ago as a heterodoctrine, and there were lots of different things we'll see as we continue through 1 Timothy, that they were teaching about forbidding marriage and abstaining from food and secret interpretations and genealogies and myths. All of it was sidetracking the gospel message. Timothy would have seen this in the unsound doctrine. It was leading people to ungodly living. And Timothy, I'm sure, as a good pastor, would have been saying, how can I stand firm with all of this circumstance around me? How can I fight the good fight? And the answer is twofold. Number one, you turn the light on. Because when there's light, the darkness has to flee. And so there's the light and the living it out, the doctrine and the practice. We've said the orthodoxy. And this week, uh, I think it was in Connect 101, uh, Bobby used the word orthopraxy, which is practicing good, sound doctrine. So orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And these three verses, if Timothy is going to stand firm in the faith, Timothy needed to understand three things. And I'll give them to you, and then we're going to stand and read 1 Timothy. In fact, you can stand while I say these. Timothy needed to understand, number one, his responsibility to the church. Number two, his responsibility to the Lord. Number three, his responsibility to the leaders that had fallen uh, into sin. And with that, I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting verse 18. Let's read. It says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. And let's pray. Lord, These are very, very serious words. Uh, Your word is uh, so powerful. I pray that as we get our minds around these three verses, God, that it would not only uh, be head knowledge, but it would sink into our hearts and help us to apply these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You can be seated. If Timothy was going to understand if he was going to stand firm in the faith, the first thing is that he had a responsibility to the church. Verse 18, it says this, I give you this instruction, and I'll pause right there. That word instruction means a command, like a military command. It's an idea that it does not need to be discussed. The same word is used in chapter 5, verse 21, and in chapter 6, verse 13, where it says, I charge you. The idea here is that there is a duty that Timothy needs to fulfill. Paul is saying, Timothy, 
Remember, this is your calling. This is who you are. In other words, Timothy, you don't have a choice. And Paul understood this himself in a deep, deep way. He's not just telling Timothy something he didn't practice. Look in Acts chapter 26, verses 19 and 20. It says this, he's talking to King Agrippa. He says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Paul had a mandate straight from heaven to do God's work. For, he said, first in Damascus, then those in, to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. What? I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. He says, I preached. There was a sense of duty in Paul's life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, we see a similar idea where Paul is encouraging to preach the word. Look what it says, verse 16. It says, yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. I have a duty, a command. I've been instructed to preach. And then he says this, I can't boast, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The key for Paul was to preach the word. And he's saying to Timothy, do the same. And I believe that every preacher is under that same command, that same duty in our lives. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, again, this is to pastors in particular. It says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And I know I'm moving quickly. It says, in view of his appearing and, uh, and his kingdom, I give you this charge. In other words, this is the command. This is to Timothy again, the second letter. This is, uh, again, to a pastor uh, leading a congregation. It says in verse 2, unequivocally, it says, preach the word. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Be prepared whether they receive it or not, in other words. And unfortunately, there are a lot of churches that do not preach the word. They talk about pop culture or self-indulgent topics. And for me, as your pastor... I believe I am under obligation to you and to God to preach the word. And it's not easy, even today. And we're going to get to a very, very interesting passage. But I'm thankful at the Gateway Church that there are many, many of you that are hungry for the word of God. And uh, the leadership here at the church, uh, the board and the elder that we have, they encourage me, pastor, preach the word and to help us to become more biblically literate. Lord, help us. Now, back to the duty for Timothy. Timothy had a sense there was not a choice for him. And I don't think it's just for Timothy. I don't think it's just for pastors. I believe that idea can translate to every single one of us, young and old. As believers, we are under instruction. We are under command. There's a duty to be in the Word of God, to be praying, and to be in church, to be a part, to pick up your ministry. That is our duty, church. 
And a lot of Christians don't get that. And the reason is because they have no sense of duty. And the church, uh, as a result, in many cases, is anemic. And it's defeated. And it's downplayed. So many people, they only do what they feel like doing. Or they'll do it later. They say someone else will fill in the gaps. And they're missing God opportunities in their lives. And it's really a picture of our culture that is self-indulgent, whatever feels good. Modern theology focuses on freedom and success and fulfillment and spiritual satisfaction. You may have heard it called the happy gospel or a social gospel. And the last thing that is talked about in many circumstances is duty or obligation. Duty is a four-letter word, and it's acquainted many times, unfortunately, with legalism. And that's the furthest thing from Paul's idea here. But to many Christians, they'll attend a church, they're based on what feels good. But listen, it's not only our duty to meet together, according to Hebrews 10, 25, it says, do not give up the meeting together, um, uh, but it's our duty to be active and engaged. I want to say this, that there's really twofold. When I say it's important for us to be together, number one, you need it. I need it. We, we need this time to be in God's presence, praying and worshiping together. But there's another piece. I believe that someone else here needs you as well. And so don't come to church just ready to receive Come believing that God is going to use you to link arms with somebody, to come alongside someone to encourage or to serve in some way. And I believe that's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God at work when we can be actively engaged. And Paul reminds Timothy of this. He says, carry it out. Don't give up. The church needed Timothy to lead well. And the church needs you to lead well. And the church needs me to lead well as well. That was the first responsibility. And also, number two, if he was going to fight the good fight, there was a responsibility not only to the church, but also to the Lord. Verse 19 uses this phrase, of faith and of a good conscience. The same thing is said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. I'll break that down. The faith means the truth, sound doctrine sound teaching. Therefore, you need to learn and to study and then apply God's truth in your life, in your circumstances, and that leads to a good conscience. Faith leads to a good conscience, a purity of heart, a living godly with right actions, taking the right steps at the right time. The idea here that Paul is uh, encouraging Timothy is that the right belief leads to the right action, which leads to the right belief, which leads to the right action. It's a cycle that is a positive thing. Victorious living is not all that complicated. It's knowing the Word of God and then living it out before the Lord and before others. And that leads to a good conscience. Now listen, if you have the right belief, which is good start, but then your behavior is wrong, what does that lead to? Guilt, shame, a guilty conscience, right? A, not a clear conscience. 
when you boil it down, our responsibility is to be in Christ, to remember whose we are and who we belong to. And we need to do that. And without that, our faith and our good conscience will be, according to Paul, it'll be shipwrecked. It'll be destroyed. It'll be damaged. And none of us can afford that. No one wants that. And so we have a responsibility to the church. We also, Paul says, Timothy, you have a responsibility to the Lord, to me, with a good faith, good strong doctrine, and good conscience. But then there's a third thing. And we're going to take a little more time on this one. If Paul's going to fight the good fight, and really it's a noble fight, that word good, is, it's a good fight, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's worthwhile. There's a responsibility to the leaders who are in error. In fact, let's read it in context just to kind of set our hearts there. Again, starting in verse 19, holding on to the faith and good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, this in this particular context, it's talking about um, doctrine specifically but um, having bad doctrine and turning them over to Satan. But this certainly applies to uh, our practice, uh, godly living. And really, ultimately, it's dealing with church discipline. And again, this is not easy. And I know we've got some first-timers here. And uh, I want to just preface this whole conversation on this third point is that we must lead with love, with patience, with hope of repentance and restoration. But I also want to be very clear that in Scripture, we must, according to Scripture, we must deal with discipline issues within the body of Christ. We must deal with false teachers and with those within the church that are living ungodly lives. And if we don't, if we choose to just ignore it, we preaching is in vain, preaching is foolishness. If we don't, even a little bit will spoil the whole bunch. How many are bakers bake something? You know, you put some salt in, you know, in a mix and you put that all around. You can't get it back out. It affects the whole batch of whatever you are making. And the same is true in our lives. A little spoils the whole bunch. Now, this was a big job for Timothy. This was not easy, but in Ephesus, the leaders were apparently advocating for error and for evil. It was resulting in ungodly living. And Paul is saying, look, turn these leaders over to Satan. That is really heavy. You say, what is this about? <laughs> you say, what in the world? I have in my notes here just an encouragement to myself. Don't be afraid to deal with this because it's in God's word. And there's really three things I'd like to do in the next, you know, maybe 15 minutes or so is to look at an overview of this idea. I want to look at a couple examples in Scripture and then we'll come back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20 and, uh, and kind of wrap things up and try to make some application. But let's start with an overview of this idea of turning someone over to Satan. The vocabulary, handing over to Satan, means to abandon, to remove protection. 
to walk away from. And the result is when you do that in someone's life, that you are exposing that person to some great danger. It's very, very serious. Now, if you know Christ as your Savior, how many know that there is a protection that comes? You are no longer of the world. And how many say amen to that, right? We're thankful for that. But Satan is limited, when Satan is limited in how he can attack you as a believer. And we'll talk about that. There's an insulation, there's a protection, and some blessing that comes. And by the way, if you are hanging around uh, believers, let's say you're not a believer, maybe you've just been coming to church and just and you're around, um, just by being around believers, um, there's a protection on your life as well. And it's kind of interesting, as you study that, it's true for unbelievers as is believers. In fact, First uh, John chapter 5 uh, talks about that. You can turn there with me. First John chapter 5, verse 18 says this. It says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. The evil, can, the evil one cannot harm him. There are limits to what the enemy can do in attacking your life. A Christ follower is under Christ's dominion. A great example of this is in Genesis chapter 18, where it shows the powerful influence of a righteous person. This is the story where Abraham is pleading for Sodom. He's saying, look, God, would you save the city of Sodom and Gomorrah for 50 righteous people? And God says, yes, I'll save, I'll spare the city. I'm not going to wipe it out for 50 righteous. Abraham comes back, 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, all the way down to 10. God, for 10 righteous people, would you spare the thousands, the tens of thousands, maybe the hundreds of thousands of people? And God says, yes, I will spare all these people for just 10. Church, you cannot underestimate your effect on others around you. We see the same thing with Joseph and Potiphar. Joseph was a righteous man serving under Potiphar, and everything that Potiphar did because he's close to Joseph was blessed. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when uh, someone that is married to an unbeliever, so a believer and unbeliever being married together, there is a protection for the mate. It doesn't make them saved, but there's a protection there, not only for the mate, but also for the kids. And I want to say to you guys, wherever you go, you take the kingdom of God with you. And there's a protection that follows you. Now, back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. It says that you would hand them over to put them outside of that protection. The overview is this idea is that you are outside, that it's a protection issue. You're out of the church. You say, well, are there examples in Scripture where we can see this? And there certainly are. There's a lot of them. I want to start with 1 Samuel chapter 10. And I mean, we're just going to hit a couple. But listen, in 1 Samuel 10, Saul, the first king of Israel, King Saul, uh, on verse 9 of chapter 10, it says that the Spirit of God was on him. He was anointed king, but Saul was an ego-driven man. 
uh, known for rash judgments. He really was one of uh, Israel's, uh, not one of the best leaders. And within six chapters, by 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says that Samuel the prophet is led by God to anoint a new king of Israel. He's saying, look, something's wrong here, something's going awry. And what it says in that chapter, it says that the Spirit of God departed from Saul. Saul's life, at that point, he began to be terrorized by the enemy. Chapter 18 says, specifically, God turns Saul over to Satan. He removes his protective hand off of Saul's life. And things went from bad to worse. If you can read it in chapter 19, he is found like convulsing, thriving, and uh, uh, like throwing himself on the floor in the kingdom, in the palace, completely stark naked. Can you imagine? Put that into our terms. If the president of the United States was caught, no clothes on, throwing a tantrum on the floor, what would we do? We would institutionalize him, wouldn't we? After, well, maybe laughing or crying, I don't know. But that's what happened. <laughs> I know it's a, not a pretty picture. In chapter 22, by chapter 22, he, Saul becomes a mass murderer. 28, he seeks out the witch of Endor. And in chapter 31, he takes his own life. He commits suicide, which, by the way, was a rare act in Israel. But not so rare for those that are delivered over to Satan. Another example of that is John chapter 13. I won't take the time to look at it specifically, but it's the story of Judas betraying Jesus. They're in the upper room, and Judas obviously had a rebellious uh, uh, nature to him, but he was insulated. He was protected when he was one of the twelve. But Jesus says in chapter 13, he says, the enemy has filled your life. Go and do what you are so what you have, have in your heart to do. In other words, he's saying now the protection is lifted. He goes, he betrays Jesus, and ends up taking his own life. He was turned over to Satan. In Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, you might be familiar. Their hearts were deceived. They sold some property. They lied about what they were giving to the church. They, they were deceived by Satan, and the Lord took their very lives. Now, in each of these cases, the Holy Spirit is dealing with individuals directly. It's not the church administrating discipline, but you say, is there a, ever a time in church where we need to do that and not, you know, to kind of help the Holy Spirit along? And yes, absolutely. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When we studied 1 Corinthians, I think Pastor Pete preached this section of Scripture, but look what it says. In 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1, it says, there, It is actually reported in the church of Corinth that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. I mean, how uh, wrong is that? It's most likely not his, his mother. It's probably a stepmother as you study that. But then it says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? In other words, turn him over to Satan. We continue to read. Look what it says in verse 3. 
Verse 3 says, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this. It just as if I were present, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit, the power of the Lord Jesus is present. And listen what it says, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan. Why? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. This is serious. Saying, look, you've got to separate him to put him apart, to remove them from fellowship. And I don't know about you, but I ask the question, well, if we remove them from fellowship, how are they ever going to be one? How are they going to come back to the Lord if we kick them out? Doesn't that seem harsh? Well, first of all, I want to say, it's not my idea. It's, the, it's God's word. And we need to uphold his word, even if we don't understand it completely. But the second thing is there's an idea here that if they are turned over and Satan has his way, they will come to their senses and hopefully come to repentance. Repentance is always the goal. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. I want to explain that if we tolerate false teachers or false living or sinful living, if we tolerate you fill in the blank, what happens is that we, the church, become hardened and desensitized. And I would say most of the American church probably is in that state. And I want to say this as well. It will be held against the church for not dealing with the issues at hand. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. This is very interesting. The church of Thyatira. This is Jesus talking to the Apostle John um, in a vision. This is Jesus speaking about the church of Thyatira. Look at verse 19. It says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. So they're getting along. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate or allow, you aren't dealing with the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So in other words, in that circumstance, there was someone that appeared to be a teacher that was sharing, it was a prophetess, uh, like a, a, a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothes. And then look what it says. It says, you have tolerated her, and by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I have given her time to repent for her immorality, but she is unwilling. That speaks to the patience. The grace of God is slow. God is slow to anger. But look what happened. They, she didn't respond. She was unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. In other words, I have turned her over to Satan, and I will make these or those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Not only that, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who have not held to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, myths, genealogies, things of the sort, only hold on to what you have until I 
come. You say, man, that is serious. The wrath of God. How would you administrate this? What would that look like within the local body of believers? And there's some insight in Matthew chapter 18. We don't have the time to look at it, but there's steps along the way. And I'll give it to you in 30 seconds. The first is if you see a brother teaching false doctrine, something that's ungodly, or they're living in an ungodly manner, uh, and it's blatant, and it's um, right out there, you go to that person yourself and hopefully win the brother. If that doesn't happen, you take someone with you in the, and would take two or more. If that doesn't happen, then you bring it to the church. You say, hey, let's make an appointment with the church. And then the church has to get involved to administrate what that looks like. Now, back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. The elders were not godly. And Paul reminds Timothy, look, I dealt with this with Hymenaeus and with Alexander. And Timothy, you must do the same. And I believe that Paul would have encouraged him to take his time, to do it with love and with accountability. But when there's habitual offenders in these areas, this is very, very serious issues. This is not when just someone messes up once, you just turn them over to Satan. I mean, that kind of idea would be, I mean, ludicrous and out of Paul's thinking, not even close. You don't turn someone over to Satan in a flippant way. You kick them out of the church only after you have endlessly tried to restore. But at some point, you would need to do that. We've never had to do that in the nine years that I've been here, but I've heard of other churches that do, and it takes a year or two before you bring it before the church. You give every opportunity, and the result for that person being kicked out is that there's judgment on their life, sickness, many times loss of job, assets, and wealth, and even death in their family. You say, you know, prove that to me. Well, in Thyatira, the Lord took their kids in Job's circumstance, which Job was turned over to Satan with limits, and it's an interesting story. I wish we had time to look at it, but Satan said, can I attack Job? And he was able to do so much, took all of his wealth. He came back, said, Job still isn't cursing you, God. It's because I can't touch him. He allowed him to touch him with sickness and to even kill his family and his kids, and Job never turned away. But listen, that can happen. In, in, a, in a family, sickness and judgment and loss of, and, and death. First Corinthians chapter 11 talks about the same thing. In the Corinthian church, there were people that were taking communion in an unworthy manner, and there were many that were sick and even falling asleep. In other words, they were dying because of the sin that was in their lives. They were being judged. And the point is, is that it's the responsibility of the church to deal with these types of things. And the Holy Spirit, thank God, many times will deal with it without the church even having to get involved. I believe He does that because the Holy Spirit is protecting the church. But there are times when it is flagrant, when it is willful, when it is habitual, blaspheming God, slandering God, denying Christ, those types of things, or sin, uh, you know, adultery, fornication that is blatant and, uh, and it's out there. Those things must be disciplined. 
And really, it's the loving thing to do. If you've ever raised kids, you have to, have to discipline your kids. And yeah, it's a hassle, right? It takes a lot of time to do so, but it's worth it. And in the church, we have to do it as well. And it can be a hassle, and it can take time, but it's absolutely worth it. And Paul is saying to Timothy, and as I close, Timothy, do what is right, and God will continue to protect you, and he'll protect the church. Now, three takeaways. First one is this, is that overlooking flagrant error in doctrine or error in living is not being gracious. Some people say, oh, I'll just give that person grace. Listen, it is not being gracious. We must keep the church pure. Now, I care, as your pastor, about the reputation of the Gateway Church. And I want you to know that if you are attending here, or if you're a member, certainly, or a regular attender, that you take the testimony of our church you are a living testimony of what we allow and i just want to say this that we take that very seriously and i want you to be very careful with habitual sin or overt sin or things like that that if you are living in one way that is inconsistent with the word of god in your life don't tell people that you go to the gateway church and i'm serious because it's it's not good for the kingdom of God. It's not good for our church. Overlooking flagrant error in doctrine, in error in living, is not the gracious thing to do. Number two is when dealing with sin. And I want to just reiterate this because it's so important. When there's error, the goal is always restoration. It's always repentance. We cannot be motivated by vindication, by revenge, Instead, it must be love. And love covers a multitude of sin, but at some point, love will expose the sin, the error. It's the right thing to do. And then the third thing, and this, I believe, is where the rubber meets the road for many of us, is that living in open disregard to God's standard actually removes us from his protection, from his blessing. Now, I'm not talking about being perfect. None of us are perfect. And I am the first one to uh, share my faults in different settings. I've you know, been very transparent, and, and I am a sinner just like anyone else. But listen, I'm talking about habitual, uh, consistent sin. Uh, you cannot tolerate sin in your life in those ways if you allow things to continue to fester and you don't deal with the issues you put yourself at risk you say well no one knows it's all secret listen god knows and the holy spirit can take care of you in a way of judgment and i know that's hard to say but it's so true. And he does so because he loves the church and he wants a pure church. And I would just ask the question, what in your life, what in your world can be offered that compares to the blessings of God? Because that's it, that you're choosing. And I get it, sometimes it's tricky. But God, he desires 
for us to be pure and holy in his sight. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the time, the graciousness of everyone here to listen and to try to apply this word to their lives. God, I pray that you get a hold of our hearts and our minds. And Lord, help us to be living examples of you in word, in doctrine, and in practice. Lord, I thank you for this. And Lord, now I pray that you'd reveal to us areas of our lives where we need to allow you to work in us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. With your head bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around this morning, I'm going to ask that if you are here today and you do not know Jesus as your personal Savior, I don't know everyone here, if you don't know the Lord, if you're away from God, maybe you served Him at one point, but if you were to die today, you don't know if you'd go to heaven. I want to give you the opportunity of a lifetime is to receive Christ as your personal Savior. And if that's you today, you're ready to say yes. I want you to just raise your hand. Who here this morning says yes to the Lord in that way? Like Brenda did a few months ago and how Savannah did three years ago as we heard testimony, second service. Who's ready to receive Christ today into your life? Anyone at all that's away from the Lord? Okay. All right, I don't see any hands. With your head, continue to be bowed, eyes closed. When we consider our lives, when we consider our lives held up against the standard of God's word, I want to ask a question. Are you in your life tolerating sin at some degree? And if you are, I'm going to ask you to do something very bold. With no one looking around, I want you to just raise your hand, just acknowledge that, you know what, there are things in my life that I'm tolerating that I must address. If that's you, just slip up your hand right where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your honesty. You can put your hands down. Anyone else? And that's where I am today. There are things that I'm allowing in my life that are potentially limiting the protection, putting me at risk. Just raise your hand just one more second. Anyone else? Just acknowledging that in your life. All right. I want you all to stand right where you are. We're going to just pray and close our time. And after we pray here, and uh, pray a prayer of closing and benediction, uh, then we will have a time just to turn and greet one another. I know I've gone a little longer. I knew I would. I had a lot to say. I didn't talk all week, so I had lots of, lots of words to use up. But this morning, I want you to go let these words continue to wash over you to keep you safe and healthy in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that your blessing of your word would ring true. Lord, bless each person here. Go before us, behind us, and all around us. Thank you for allowing us to address these things. And God, help us to be the church that you've called us to be. We pray it all in Jesus' wonderful and awesome name. And all God's people said, amen.